following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. So this morning, we are going to look at the resurrection story because it's Easter. And we looked a few weeks ago, we've been working through Isaiah, and so we had that passage in Isaiah 53 on the crucifixion. And I think that was, that was a good way of, of anchoring us in the events of Good Friday. And now we're going to come to the Gospel of John this morning and look at the story of the resurrection of Jesus from John's Gospel in John chapter 20. So if you've got a Bible, uh, we're, just, we're going to work through the story this morning. So good day to have the Bible in front of you. We're going to point out some details in the passage as we go. If you've got it on your device, then you can open up that app. And Jamie Carroll is going to come and read that passage for us this morning. So come on up, Jamie. Come and read the word for us. Um. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He... He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. She, he asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I'll get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go on, said to my brothers, and tell him, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Great job, Jamie. That's fantastic. Kapai. All right. I want to start by playing a video clip. This is from a movie came out a few years ago called Risen, uh, starring Joseph Fiennes, and he plays a Roman soldier named Clavius, and Clavius is commanded to undertake this investigation into the disappearance of a body, a body belonging to Jesus of Nazareth. And so this is the moment when Clavius comes into the empty tomb and discovers that the body is not there. Have a look at the screen. Bring the Arimathea in. You! Get the Arimathea. As if they burst. 
See this? Oh. Oh. Where has he gone? You tell me. The body. Was it anointed? We have no time. We just wrapped him with myrrh and aloe. That's what you see. Sweat and herbs. Bring it. I want nothing touched here. Post to watch. And everything leaving Jerusalem searched. Arrest anyone claiming the Nazarene lives and find out where they heard it. That's true. Right. It was quite glary on Easter Sunday morning. That's why you can't see that very well. <laughs> it's very true to life. Uh, so the, the idea is uh, that Clavius goes on and, and interviews various people. He interviews Mary Magdalene. And he interviews Bartholomew, one of the disciples. And then he, there's this interesting scene where he interviews one of the Roman soldiers who was guarding the tomb. And you hear this guy talk about the experience of, of uh, you know, Jesus rising from the dead. And then at the end, spoiler alert, at the end, Clavius meets Yeshua, Jesus, and has this encounter with Christ. So it's kind of his journey of, journey of discovering. And it, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting story. I mean, that's, that's really... Um, historical fiction, Clavius is a, is a fictitious character. But it, it, I just play that because it kind of raises these questions for us about how do we actually know what happened? You know, like we just kind of assume things maybe as Christians, but how do we actually know what happened on that Sunday morning when Jesus allegedly rose from the dead? Uh, there, there, was, there was no person called Clavius as far as we know. There, there were definitely Roman soldiers there, but who actually was there and, and why should we believe them? And there's these stories that have arisen about Jesus and a lot of people believe this and have believed it for 2,000 years. But how do we get underneath all of that and find out what actually went on that morning when Jesus supposedly rose from the dead? And the answer that Christians give to this question is actually very simple. And it is that we have an eyewitness testimony. That, that's really very simple. And the passage that you just heard read out is that eyewitness testimony. So in all of the Bible, there is only one eyewitness, truly eyewitness account of the resurrection. We've got four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but only one of them was actually there at the resurrection. And that was John. Now the others are pretty close to the action. But their, their accounts are still told to them by people who were there, Mary and Peter and, and others. But John was there. And so when you're reading the Gospel of John, this is, this is an important historical piece of literature because it's the only first-hand account that we have of that morning. And thank goodness, John took the trouble to write it down. And it's been preserved and it's been copied and it's been passed on through history. So we have it. That's what you're holding in your hands in your Bibles. It's a really important piece of information, just historically, whether you're a Christian or not, as eyewitness testimony to the events that happened that morning. So I want you to think of it that way. And I, I want to just walk through the story that, that John is telling, this account that he's giving of the experience that he and Peter and Mary went through on that Sunday morning. And as you walk through this, you see that John tells us what happened, and he also tells us what it means. So he's doing both. He gives you the facts, and then he also tells you the deeper significance of what it means. So that's part of the story as well. It's woven through the story. So let's have a look at this eyewitness testimony that John gives us of what happened that first Easter Sunday morning. In verse 1, he starts this way. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, 
Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now, let's talk a bit about Mary, Mary Magdalene. We don't know a whole lot about Mary, Mary Magdalene. She has a really hard time in church history because a lot of people tell stories about her. And she's developed a real reputation, actually two different reputations. On, on one hand, a lot of people have turned Mary Magdalene into a prostitute. That's one theory, which there's no evidence for. And then on the other hand, a whole lot of people have turned Mary Magdalene into the wife of Jesus or the mistress of Jesus. That's the other theory. That's the whole theory that um, the Da Vinci Code is based on. If you saw that movie, that whole idea that she's the, the wife of Jesus and so on, it's based on some documents which were written hundreds of years after the Gospels and totally discredited as authoritative accounts of what actually happened in the first century. Nevertheless, that myth has persisted. And so poor old Mary, she gets a hard time of it. She's either a prostitute or Jesus' mistress. In fact, she was neither of those things. We don't know a whole lot about her backstory. Uh, all we're told in the Gospels is that she was a follower of Jesus. We know that much. She was among the group of disciples who followed Jesus. She was a woman who had had seven demons cast out of her. We are told that. And we know that she was there at the cross. We're told that she was a witness to the crucifixion. So she was there. And now she comes to the tomb on this Easter Sunday morning. And this is really the, the, the longest account that we have of Mary Magdalene doing anything in, uh, in the Bible. So she comes to the tomb and she's coming to, to bring some spices, to embalm the body of Jesus. There hadn't been time to do any of that on the Friday. It was very rushed. It was late in the day. So now she comes with some spices to embalm, to anoint Jesus. But she gets to the tomb and she finds that the stone's been removed. And that would have been really confusing for her. I mean, we look back now, we go, oh yeah, Jesus has risen from the dead. But think about Mary coming to the tomb and, and, the, and the stone's not there. So what's, what's she thinking? Now, where's, where's the body been taken? Who's come and taken the body of Jesus? Have they moved him to another tomb? Did they need the space for someone else? What's been going on? Well, how come no one told us about these things? She would have been totally confused by this. And so at first, she doesn't go into the tomb. Instead, she goes back and she tells Peter and John. And as soon as she tells Peter and John, those two guys make a run for the tomb. From wherever they were staying, they just start running. Now, John refers, by the, if, you, if you're wondering, John refers to himself as the other disciple. Okay, So he's not named, but that's how John refers to himself throughout his gospel. He's the other disciple, or he's the disciple Jesus loved, or the beloved disciple. That's just John's way of referring to himself. Okay, So you can be confident this is talking about John, the disciple of Jesus. So John and Peter take off and they're running for the tomb. And John, good old John, makes a, makes a point of noting that he ran faster than Peter. The other disciple outran. You can do that when you're writing the story. You, know? you can put those details in. He, he was the faster runner. You know? Peter was probably the better swimmer, I would say, you know? based on some other, some other stories in the gospel. But John ran faster than Peter. He got to the tomb first, but you've got this great moment where John gets to the tomb and he stops. He's looking in, but Peter, good old Peter, good old impulsive Peter, what happens? He's coming from behind. He just goes straight in. He doesn't stop at the entrance to the tomb. He just goes straight into the tomb, right? It's like act first, think later with Peter. So now Peter's inside the tomb and he's looking around. And what he sees, this is fascinating, verse six, he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. Now, 
when, when Jesus was placed in the tomb, he would have been wrapped up like a mummy in all these strips of linen. I mean, his body would have been so lacerated and shredded, but he would have been wrapped in, in fully in all of these strips. And then there was a separate cloth or wrapping that went around the head. That was a separate piece from the rest of the body. So what Peter sees is these strips of linen, they still would have been horribly bloodied, lying now just on the ground. No body. And even more strangely, he sees the head cloth. And you don't quite catch this in English, but in the Greek, it literally says there in verse 7, it was folded up in its place. Not just lying there. The head cloth had been folded up. Now you have to ask the question, who does this? Like one of the theories that was swirling around to explain the disappearance of Jesus' body is that the body was stolen. Well, who's going to unwrap the body first? If you're going to steal a body and you're doing it quickly, you're not going to bother taking all of these strips of linen off and let alone folding the head cloth and putting it nicely in it. You just take the body and run. But, but, but all of the, the linen and the head cloth is still there and it's beautifully preserved and the head cloth is folded. It's kind of like, I think of it like Jesus got up and made his bed. You know, it's actually this nice little, it's, everything's just in its place there. So Peter is, is trying to make sense of all of this, trying to figure it out. And then in verse 8, John enters the action and says, Finally, the other disciple, that's John, who had reached the tomb first, just so you know, also went inside. And then this beautiful sentence, he saw and believed. It's a great moment, great moment for John who's writing this. I mean, this is, this is actually John's testimony. That he, can you hear that? This is his own story, you know? And he's saying, this was my moment. This was when it became real to me. I saw and I believed. That means to have faith. I had faith. This was the moment for John when he had faith in who Jesus was, that Jesus had truly risen from the dead. A, a chapter later, John says, this is the whole purpose of me writing this gospel, that you might believe, same word, that you all might believe and that believe that Jesus is the Messiah and by believing have life in his name. So this is what John wants for everyone who's reading his gospel, but he's not asking something that he has not experienced himself. He's saying, this was my moment. This is when it became real and personal and powerful for me. The resurrection is an historical event, but it's also a deeply personal event. It was personal for John. And this was a moment, you could say, this was John's conversion. This was the time when he truly saw and truly believed that Jesus was who he said he was. So John saw and believed. And then Peter and John, at that point, they exit the scene. They depart the tomb. But Mary is still there. And this is where the, the focus now shifts to Mary Magdalene. She's now there by herself. There may have been some other women we know from the other Gospels that were there with her. But as John tells the story, the focus is really on, on Mary herself. She's standing still outside the tomb and she's weeping. She's crying because she's confused. And she's still experienced huge trauma from Friday and everything that she saw and witnessed there. And she's trying to make sense of this. And so she's standing there and she's weeping. And she... She still isn't going into the tomb, but she bends down and she has a look inside. Now, these tombs, I've, I've been to Israel and seen a couple of similar sorts of tombs. They think the kind of thing that Jesus would have been placed in. They're really little entrances. 
to these tombs. We think of like big, massive stone that's been, you know, there and, and huge entranceways. No, these were tiny little entranceways. It, it gets bigger inside, but to, to get in there, you've really got to squat down and almost crawl in. And so you can imagine Mary sort of squatting right down and, and trying, to, trying to look inside this tomb without quite having the courage to go in. And as she looks inside the tomb, she sees something that neither of the other two saw. She sees these two angels. And she sees these angels, one at the head of where Jesus would have been and one at the foot of where Jesus would have been. And I think she must have figured that out from where the linen cloths were and where the headcloths was. That you've got these two angels almost standing guard where the body of Jesus had been. Now, there is some deep symbolism here. And for people reading this from a Jewish background, that symbolism would have been quite obvious. It's not so much to us. But the symbolism goes all the way back to the book of Exodus. In Exodus, God commanded his people to build a tabernacle. It was a tent. And this was a tent where his presence would dwell. God said, I, might, I will dwell with you among my people. And within the tabernacle complex, you had this inner room, the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And inside that, there was a big box called the Ark of the Covenant. And as God was giving Moses the instructions for building this, he said, now at the ends of the Ark, I want you to build two statues of two angels made of gold. These are called cherubim, one at the head and one at the foot. And so these golden statues stood there, in a sense, guarding the Ark. And then in between the cherubim, this was the very spot where the presence of God would dwell with his people, the most holy, the most sacred place. Now you bring all that into John chapter 20, and you have this scene there where now again you've got two angels there, two cherubim at the head and at the foot of where the body of Jesus would have been. And what are we supposed to think? This is the presence of God. This body that was there, not anymore now, but this body that was there, this body contained the very presence of the living God. The same God who came down in the tabernacle and dwelt among his people now has come down to tabernacle with us. The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us, literally tabernacled with us. So the body of Jesus is the very living, breathing, walking, talking, sleeping presence of God on earth with his people. It's God incarnate. That's the message that we're supposed to be getting here. And now that body was lying in a tomb. The presence of God was in a tomb. And in a sense here, I think the symbolism is that that tomb had become like the most holy place in the tabernacle. It had become like this inner sanctuary. But now, just like the curtain had been torn in the temple, now the stone has been rolled away. And so the presence of God is no longer confined to this little space in an empty tomb. Now the presence of God has gone out into the world. The presence of God has flooded out into the world because Christ has risen. This is telling us about the presence of God contained in Jesus, now available to every person because Jesus has been raised from the dead. All of that from those two angels. Those images from Exodus would have been right there. And Mary is now thinking this. She wouldn't have understood the whole thing. But in some way now, this is the presence of God. This one who was here. And he's now gone out into the world. The presence of God freely available to all people everywhere in the world.
So that's part of the story here that John's bringing us in on. This is part of the deeper meaning, Jesus being the very presence, now the resurrected presence of God. And so the angels now address Mary and they say to her, woman, why are you crying? She says, they've taken my Lord away and I don't know where they've put him. And we're up to verse 14. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was him. So John kind of brings us in on the secret. This is Jesus now. He's appeared to Mary, but she doesn't yet recognize that it's Jesus. And Jesus asks Mary the same question that the angels had asked. Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you were looking for? And then you have this intriguing phrase halfway through verse 15 where John says, thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him. And I will get him. Now, why does John mention this bit about the gardener? Seems like a bit of an odd detail to throw in. John's got a bit of a thing with gardens in his gospel. He's the only gospel writer to tell us that Jesus was placed in a garden tomb. None of the other gospels tell it. They just talk about a tomb. But John says, no, the tomb was in a garden. It was, there, was, there was a garden tomb there. And now we get to Resurrection Sunday and John says, oh, by the way, Mary thought Jesus was the gardener. And I think that there's, again, a bit of deeper meaning that's going on here. I think John is kind of winking at us here. And he's saying, if you can catch what I'm saying, there's actually some, some connections that you can make here. See, John is taking us here right back to creation. And you think of the way John's gospel begins. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He, he goes right back. When he starts his story about Jesus, he doesn't start with the birth of Jesus. He goes back to, back to creation. He goes right back to the beginning when Jesus was there at the beginning and the world was created through him. And you think about the creation story. So in the beginning, God creates the world and he creates a garden. <laughs> and in the garden, he places... A gardener. Can you, can you start connecting the dots? And this gardener's name was Adam. And God places Adam in the garden and tells him to care for this garden and nurture it and look after it and cultivate this garden. And God is, is asking Adam to, to be, in a sense, his vice ruler over creation, to extend out this garden and God's loving rule and creative activity throughout the world and to, to rule over creation on God's behalf. So this, the whole creation story has this garden and this gardener. Now, you come to Easter Sunday morning, and again, we've got a garden. This time it's a garden tomb. And again, we've got a gardener. And at one level, yes, this is just a case of mistaken identity. And yes, Mary just thought Jesus was the gardener. But at another, at another level, I think John might be saying to us, Jesus was the gardener in a way that Mary never realized. Jesus was the new gardener of this new, in a sense, garden of Eden. It's like the, it's like the empty tomb was, was the garden of Eden. And now Jesus is this new garden, like a new Adam. Come along. The new head of a new humanity. The new beginning of a whole new human race. A whole new creation coming forth out of the old creation bursting forth onto the scene. And Jesus now is the one who's taking it forward. He is the one who's now come to cultivate and to nurture and to tend this new garden, this new creation 
this new world that God's bringing about. And we can now be connected to this new gardener rather than the old one who brought about sin and death. Now Jesus is leading this new humanity and he's inviting us to be a part of it. So John is reaching right back. Can you hear how he's reaching back into his own story? Reaching back into the, into the story of Israel, reaching back to the Exodus, reaching back to creation as he, as he tells us about what the resurrection of Jesus means. And so Mary thinks Jesus is the gardener and asks him where the body's been placed. And then Jesus brings this right down to a personal level with Mary by saying just one word. Mary. He just says her name. And that's the moment for Mary, isn't it? When she hears Jesus saying her name, what happens next? Verse 16. She turned, she turns now towards him. And she cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni. And that, that word, it means teacher. It's the same word as rabbi. It's just a little bit more affectionate. So this is a term you'd call a teacher who you knew quite well, who you had a lot of respect for, who you had a good relationship with. And so Mary addresses Jesus with this term of friendship, this term of affection, Rabboni. And just for a minute, just try and imagine what this moment would have been like for Mary, of, of seeing and recognizing that this person standing in front of her was Jesus. I mean, just the, the, the cocktail of emotions that she must have been feeling hey, in that moment. You think about it. She's just been weeping at the empty tomb. She's still carrying all the trauma of Friday. And now she has Jesus standing in front of her. Just think of the, the, the relief she must have felt. But the confusion she still would have felt. And all the unanswered questions that she still would have had. But the incredible joy that she feels because her rabbi, her master is right here. The excitement that she had, the hope that she had, but the bewilderment that she had. It would have just been a bundle of every kind of emotion. And here's Jesus. The last time she saw him, it was his torn, broken, bloodied body. And now he is this resurrected renewed, perfected body. He is alive and he is well and he is healed and he is standing in front of Mary calling her name. An amazing moment for Mary Magdalene. So Jesus calls Mary's name and I think the implication of the passage is that Mary just then ran up and embraced him and threw her arms around Jesus and just couldn't stop hugging him. Because the next thing Jesus says is, do not hold on to me. So I think clearly she's just grabbing onto Jesus and she's not going to let him go again. She let him go once. She's not going to do it again. She's just grabbing onto him. But Jesus says, and this is quite a strange sounding verse in verse 17. Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. It sounds a little bit harsh in some ways. You know, Jesus is almost brushing Mary off, like saying, no, don't, don't touch me. And some people have said, well, maybe that's because he's got this nice, squeaky clean new resurrection body and he just doesn't want people messing with it. You know, it's like, it's like when you get a new fancy car, you know, don't touch this. Maybe that's what Jesus is saying. But you know, think about the interaction that Jesus had with Thomas. Like he, he invited Thomas to place his hand in Jesus' hands, to feel the nail scars, to place your hand on my side. Jesus didn't mind his resurrection body being touched. It wasn't that. Jesus is just simply saying, Mary, you can't keep me here. 
You can't keep me here because the, my work isn't finished yet. I've got one final step to go. I've got to ascend. I've got to ascend from earth to heaven. He's already ascended from death to life. Now he's got to ascend from earth to heaven. And he says, Mary, the longer you keep me here, the longer it is before I can ascend. I've got, I've got to go back to the Father. I've got to rise again to heaven. And that was necessary because Jesus had died and Jesus had risen. But when Jesus ascended, that was the moment when he was enthroned as king and crowned as Lord of all. If you think of the crucifixion and the resurrection being like the conquest, that's when Jesus conquered death and sin and Satan. But the, resurrect, uh, the, the ascension was the enthronement. It was like the coronation of a new king. It's when Jesus ascended to the Father and received all authority over heaven and earth. And from that point, he has been reigning and ruling as Lord of all. That's why Jesus is alive today and he reigns today, not on earth, but in heaven. He's alive, he's in heaven, he's with the Father, and he is ruling and he's reigning over all creation. Now, I know it doesn't look like it a lot of the time. We look around the world, we see brokenness, we see abuse, we see pandemic, we see injustice, we see all sort of, sorts of problems and dysfunction. And yet Jesus still reigns as the world's true and rightful king. There's a lot of resistance to that reign. There's a lot of resistance to that rule. In some ways, I think about it like Jesus is, is like a king who has conquered a new territory. And yet there are many within that territory who are not yet subject to his rule, who are not yet willingly uh, submitting themselves to him as king, but they're resisting his rule. And that's our world today, right? There's a lot of resistance to Jesus. There's a lot of human resistance. There's a lot of natural resistance just in the, in the course of a broken world. But one day, we're told, Jesus will reign fully and completely over all. And there'll be no more resistance to his reign. All of his enemies will be conquered. The final enemy, we're told, to be destroyed is what? Death. That's the last enemy. One day, death itself will die. That's, that's the end of the story. And all things will then be put under the feet of Jesus. So we're still waiting for that day. But even now we can say the resurrection points us forward to that moment when Jesus ascended to heaven and became Lord of all. And he's reigning and ruling. He's ruling over our world. He's ruling over your life, over your family. He's guiding this world towards its ultimate goal when he returns. The new heavens and the new earth. Now, that's a huge idea. And that's, that's a world-changing reality of what happened because of Jesus' resurrection on Easter Sunday morning. But this is also a deeply personal truth. And I want you to hear that this morning. It wasn't just a big thing for Mary. This was a deeply personal encounter that she had with Jesus. And I, I want to invite you, just as, as, we, as we draw this message to a close, to imagine yourself for a moment in Mary's place that Easter Sunday morning. We need to allow the resurrection story to encounter us at a personal level and just imagine what that was like for Mary. Imagine, if, if you're willing to, Jesus calling your name, just as Mary heard her name. You know, Jesus loves you. He's created you. He's, he's called you. And you could hear just in your mind, in your heart, Jesus calling your name, addressing you by name, saying the names of the people that you brought with you this morning, saying the names of the people that you love. That's how personal the resurrection is. Jesus addresses us by name. 
And as you hear that, as you hear Jesus calling your name, I want to invite you to do exactly what Mary did. What's the next thing that she did? She turned. Do you see that? She heard, and then she turned. She turned towards Jesus, and she faced him. And just in the quietness of of your own life, and I don't know where you're at with Jesus and where you're at in your faith journey, I want to invite you to turn, to turn your heart. Not not a physical turning, but wherever your heart is at, maybe you are turning away from Jesus right now. Maybe you're running away from him. Maybe you're kind of already facing him in some way, but you kind of realize, actually, my heart's not really open to Jesus. And I've kind of arrived here on Easter Sunday morning, and actually, I'm just, I'm not that connected to him at all. And he's inviting you this morning to turn, turn your heart back towards him. Open your heart towards him. Open your life afresh towards him. And as you do that, then what's the next thing that happened to Mary? She recognized. It was at that moment of turning. She heard She turned, she recognized, and her eyes were opened, and she saw the reality of who Jesus is. And that's the promise, that as you hear Jesus speak your name, as you turn your heart towards him in faith, at that moment we recognize him in a new way, and we see him for who he is, as Savior, as Lord, as King, and as God, but also as our personal friend, the one who comes alongside us and is with us now, who has lived a human life and because of that can identify with everything that you're going through. And he meets you, excuse me, meets you right at your point of need. That's who Jesus is. And so I want to invite you just to go through that journey of hearing and then turning and then recognizing maybe you have been a Christian for a long, long time. But I think maybe even more so, you need to recognize who Jesus is afresh. Because this stuff can get stale and it gets old. I don't know how many Easter Sundays you've sat in church. Maybe a lot. And perhaps for you, God is saying, I want your eyes to be opened afresh to the reality of this. Not just a Bible story, not just another Easter Sunday service, but a fresh awakening to the reality and the presence and the power of the risen Lord Jesus Christ in your life. God is wanting to bring that awakening into your life. No matter how long you've been walking with him, there is always more to know and there is always more to see in our Savior. So I want to just allow us a couple of moments. Before we take communion, just a couple of moments of quietness. And let's just allow the story to settle on our hearts. Let's just ask God to lead us into it afresh, to hear and then to turn and then to see, to recognize who Jesus is. Let's pray, and then I'll lead us in prayer as we come to communion. Jesus, you know every person sitting here this morning. You know them more than they even know themselves. You know every story and every heart. You know all that they're carrying and everywhere they've been. I want to pray, Lord Jesus, for each one of us this morning, that in our own individual way, we would hear you saying our name. 
we'd hear you speaking our name, just as Mary heard you speaking her name that morning. Jesus, we know that you love us and have created us, that we're fearfully and wonderfully made, and we just, we just hear now you addressing us by name. We just thank you that you're a personal God. I want to pray, Lord, for a, for a turning to happen in the hearts of people who are here this morning, Lord Jesus. I, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you be working now in, in the hearts. Some, Lord, might be hard and, and just resisting that, resisting that move. And you're prompting them and you're nudging them and there's something there that's just holding them back and, and keeping them from coming to you. I pray, Lord Jesus, by your power, you just break through all of our defenses and all of our excuses and all of our rash, rationalizing you away. And would you reach in and give us the faith that we need to turn our hearts towards you. And Jesus, as we, as we take this moment to turn towards you, open up our hearts. I want to pray that our experience would be something like that of Mary. That our eyes would be opened and we'd see you. Just as she recognized you in that moment and saw you. Like recognizing an old friend. Jesus, help us to see you. And for those of us who have heard the story many times, help us to see you anew, to see you afresh, to glimpse something maybe that we haven't seen before. I pray, Jesus, that you would come and meet us exactly where we're at. And for any here that have never taken that, that first step of moving towards you in faith, and recognizing you, maybe for the very first time, I pray now, God, for them, that you would lead them to step into your arms for the first time and give them the faith and the courage to respond, to say yes to you, to acknowledge their own sin and brokenness before you, to accept all that you have done on their behalf, dying for their sin in their place. And I pray that you'd lead them to step into that new life that you offer them because of your resurrection. Lord, anything that is remaining before that step can be taken. Anything that, any unanswered questions that people may have, Lord, I pray you just help them to, for a moment, just to put those aside and just simply walk towards you. There's a time for the questions to be answered. There's a time for the conversations to be had. But I, I pray just in the quietness of this moment, they'd be able to take that first step towards you, Jesus. So, Lord, you know every heart and you see every story and we just lift up our lives to you. God, you already, you already know us inside out, but we just come as we are to you and ask that you would fill us afresh and help us to live our lives in view of your resurrection. And we thank you that just as Mary went from that place, a changed person, that we'd go today transformed and given new hope and renewed by you and by your presence and by your power in our life. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.